0: To do with a certain religion, do you think? No, it's like that. No, it's no, more to do no. with a kind of a drug, isn't it? It's a drug. Well, yeah. well those that take it want to be ashamed of themselves. According to the Sun, there were Thousands of empty ecstasy wrappers littering the floor of the 250-foot-long hangar.
1: Drugs, sex, sensation. Some newspapers have called acid house music
0: a sinister and evil cult which lures young people into drug-taking. The message is certainly getting across. The organisers kept the location secret until the very last moment, which was the main reason, according to the papers, why there were so few police here and they were unable to act. Drug crazed kids, some as young as 12, boogied for eight hours yesterday at Britain's biggest ever ecstasy bash. The party took place here, infiltrated by reporters from the Mail and the Sun. There's there's supposed to be a drugs related craze. What do you know about acid house music? It must affect the brain in some way. Unless it's just the music that does it. All them lights flashing don't do you any good either, do it? (laughs) I wouldn't even go in the no. pub where them lights are. Oh, Look no, drive
1: you mate, do Welcome to the 88 Podcast with yours truly, Wayne Anthony. I'm recording this show on the 14th of the 1st, 2021. And it should be noted that 31 years ago, Genesis and Sunrise were doing a collaborative event in a secret location on this very day. So that's something. I also wanna welcome the global listeners and obviously the global viewers, but the audio podcast itself is doing quite well and it's being downloaded in countries across the planet. And I was really quite surprised as well of some of those countries, but welcome to all of those people that are tuned in and downloading the, the podcast. And we're talking countries such as Hawaii, China, Poland, Italy, Japan, Malta, ireland usa india australia germany france holland bulgaria spain and russia so welcome to all those listeners in all of those regions and hopefully many more regions to come today for although today in the uk is actually a thursday but 31 years ago it was a saturday night And I wanted to share some of the the behind-the-scenes stories of uh, the Genesis event that we did, which was actually in February. And it was the chapter of chapters. And it was on Saturday, the 11th of February. And it was in Ferry Lane. And for those who came to the event, you will remember Ferry Lane. And I wanted to, although I've actually spoken about this event in Ferry Lane, in a couple of other podcasts, I've given little tippets. I think I spoke about it with Joe um, from Labyrinth. So I definitely spoke about it with Joe from Labyrinth. And I'm sure I I might have mentioned it with the rave of the Cave Boys. I I can't remember, but I've mentioned it before. I thought I would document the whole story in this long-form format. Although... The story i'm about to tell or you know it's not even the story it's not jack and nori but the memories that i'm about to share again i'm just you know just giving you the short stories if for the full stories, you can obviously f- read my book but before we do all of that stuff let me just give a little plug to my networks because we do need support in this day and age and social media And so this podcast is actually an audio video podcast. And so you can actually watch these videos on all the discussions that you are currently listening to. And you can go to our YouTube channel and subscribe to our network. You can see it's pretty young. We do need subscribers and we do need support. So we've got all the podcast episodes there. We also do loads of different clips from the different podcasts so they're all quite exclusive to the youtube channel so if you're listening right now or watching on youtube hit us up subscribe and press the notification button we have our channel on instagram so follow us on instagram again we do different content related for instagram we have a facebook group as well Follow us on the Facebook. The Facebook. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, hit us up. It's all young. If you're on any of these networks, do give us that support. If you enjoy the network, if you enjoy what we're putting out, do give us that support. We have the official the 88podcast.com website. Lots of information. All the podcasts are links. The audio podcasts are linked here as well as show notes So we've actually got information on each of the shows that we've do and you can you know read through them the internet's a bit slow today it's been raining for the last couple of days here in london but here's all the show notes it's also got players and so you can play it and different show notes tell you a little bit about it at the end of each of the pages we've got the actual video podcast so that's the 88 podcast so follow us on there let me give my books a quick mention. class of 88 i wrote a book on my personal experiences organizing the genesis 88 parties between 1988 and 1990 i wrote a book which was published by virgin in 1998 the book was then reissued by virgin in 2018. It's the same book, essentially, but it's just been repackaged for the modern age. Uh, I've got an author's page on there, so if, you, if you're an Amazon you know member, whatever, follow the page because you never know, more books might be coming. I should also mention Class of 88 official website, which will give you lots of information. More information about me, and about some of the stuff that I did with Genesis and um the flyers and and all the paraphernalia related to the Genesis 88 parties and as you can see here at this point is the 14th of January 1989 and we've done Genesis and Sunrise we've done this was the third party together and before that, I think we've, we've done about four parties. So I, there's probably up to this point, Genesis has probably done about about seven parties because one of the parties we didn't do a flyer for. We've done a party on Boxing Day. And so that was in between these two flyers. So we didn't actually do a flyer for that event. So a couple of these events we didn't do flyers for. We just said, next Saturday, yay, come on. See you then! Yeah. So that's quite important to note. But yeah, so that's Class of 88, the website. So follow all those channels for more information. The memories I'm sharing today are about Genesis Chapter of Chapter. It's Chapter 11. It's we called We call it the Chapter of Chapters. And the reason why we call it the Chapter of Chapters is because we'd found the venue. We'd found an amazing venue and we were really quite excited to do this event because of the venue. It was an amazing venue. It was really hard to find venues, suitable venues. There were lots of industrial estates that had warehouses and a lot of them might have still had the machineries bolted to the ground. They'd been repossessed and they were empty but it wasn't quite suitable for, for what we wanted with the Genesis experience. And with the Genesis ex- experience, we didn't want it to be separated in individual rooms. We wanted everyone to share that same space and share that same energy. And we wanted to be able to see everyone, you know, and that was quite important to us. And there were other elements that were important to us as well. It couldn't be a derelict warehouse. It couldn't have smashed windows and it couldn't look unsafe there was lots of buildings that were like that, that we could have used, but it, it made no sense to us. It wouldn't, because at this time we were still blagging that we were doing these events legally. <laughs> we still had our little blagging um, package, you know, the fake leases, the fake contracts and all the fake documents relating to us as legitimate promoters. But sometimes we wasn't even party promoters. Sometimes we were, um tv producers because sometimes we were producing tv slots sometimes we were producing film sometimes we were producing documentaries obviously these were all fake roles but they suited the time and they actually worked because a lot of the time law enforcement wasn't used to coming in contact with people you know film industry people and so it was easy to kind of pull off with a bit of front you know? And so we spent so much time on the road, looking for warehouses, driving around these industrial estates, peering through windows. I mean, I mean, there was times where, you know, we'd climb over a wall, we'd find, you know, a building looks good enough. We would climb over a wall. And normally you kind of, a lot of the time you could do this in the daytime, you know wearing suits you know looking like real estate agents or something like that driving through you know we had hired cars and stuff driving through like a real estate agent looking all normal with like notepads and you know and you jump out and you know you'd be taking a few notes or whatever you know blagging it just in case anyone was actually watching you so you play the game you know looking up at the roofs and you know taking notes and stuff but you had suits on so it looked legitimate but there were other times where you know we were out there just in like our jeans and you know because we were ready to actually go into a building climb up walls it wasn't one of those occasions where we were going to be writing notes down on note and notepads in suits it was a you know we have to climb walls we have to get through gaps Saturday is coming because a lot of this warehouse searching was occurring actually on the Monday literally on the Monday after the event or you know on the Tuesday because sometimes you're still a bit wrecked on Monday or maybe you're still at a hotel or whatever but the search for the next event really started up you know, Monday, Tuesday. It was quite strict because we knew how hard it was to find venues, and we'd already blagged a couple of real estate agents. Uh, I remember we used a friend of ours, Russell. He he, he's quite you know a really well known real estate agent now in Shoreditch, and I remember he. I mean, he had to remind me, I didn't remember at the time, but he reminded me since and he was, I can't remember what estate agent it was, but Russell was working at some estate agent and apparently I went down and visited him because we knew him and unbeknown to him, well, I can't remember if it was unbeknown to him or not, but he gave us some letter-headed paper because in those days, Although real estate agents now, you know, they post their letter headed paper with lists of their housing properties and everything everywhere. But in those days, you didn't really see it. You had to literally go to an estate agent and they had to give it to you. And so we went into, I can't remember who it was. It was a brand name estate agent and we went into there and Russell was there. And Russell, you know, I can't remember, as I said, I can't remember if we told him what we were doing, but he gave us a couple of You know letter-headed documents basically just listing houses so it wasn't a biggie and on the actual monday morning of the event following the weekend that we actually used those documents those letter-headed documents from russell's office i think it might have been alan selby might have been the name of the real estate office when we um he said that loads of police had come down to their office they'd thought that someone in the office had something to do with the party so that that was quite funny and then we kind of took those documents and you know we took it to a friend of the family lee who god bless her soul you know rip lee and she was a real kind of you know gangster woman you know she was uh, she was quite a legend in her time. You know, she'd done a bit of porridge, and you know, no one, no one messed with Lee. We knew that somehow I knew that she could get this done and she did. She, she had, cause at the time you needed a special typewriter and it was a golf ball typewriter. And she had the golf ball typewriter. And so she basically, and the golf ball typewriter at that time was used in lots of government official documents. So, you know, Lee was knocking out stuff, and which I'm sure no one will mind me saying at this point in time, you know. But I've known Lee all my life at this point. And Lee, she would type out these letters for us. And at first, we would go through the whole motion of going to a photocopier and blanking it all out and stuff like that. And then we would present it to Lee, and she would write out, she would type out these fake leases, uh, which were really important to our, you know, to the black, to the fact that we were there legitimately. So there was no point in having some derelict building because we couldn't front it. We'd been searching all of these industrial estates in Chinkford, around that area, around the Walthamstow area. There were a lot of industrial estates and they were connected by A-roads And those A roads, strategically, they linked to different motorways, all which could basically link you to the whole of the UK. And that was one of our motivations for entering that area was that we could get different people from different parts of the country to the warehouse with little effort. Because the police could only block so many roads at a time because they only had limited resources that they were willing to give to this. Remembering that they were having more problems with people in pubs than they were these acid house folks. The violence that was happening in the the pubs were, you know, far worse than what was going on in any acid house party. I mean, yes, you could say, Well, what are you talking about? Everybody was on drugs, but they certainly wasn't kicking one another's heads in. You know, it was all about unity and it was all about love. So it was a totally different environment with the acid, acid parties um, to a pub. And, it, and I'm talking 10,000 people in a warehouse would give you less problems than 200 people in an East End pub. And, you know, that, and, and, and that is actually a fact. So we would be searching you know, all of these industrial estates just hoping to find a warehouse. We had acquired the reputation for staging a party every Saturday since the 24th of December and uh, we had our first party that Genesis did was on the 10th of December 1988 and we had a two-week gap and then on the 24th of December we did our first party at Leaside Road so between the 10th of December two-week gap and the 11th of February We'd done 11 parties, which I have to say is there's a lot of parties. I mean, work it out yourself. You know, we we went every single Saturday night. So it was really important that we found these buildings. We knew how important it was to us. It was funny because we didn't actually set out. While I'm speaking about this, we didn't actually set out to do a party every Saturday. It it wasn't like a a decision we made like, yeah, we're going to do a party every Saturday. It just happened that way. You just felt we were so committed to what we were doing. We realized how important it was to have this platform and for people to have an environment, a safe environment, in which they could have be surrounded with like-minded people and they could feel safe. And so it was important to us. And so it just became like an OCD. No. we um we had to have a party every Saturday, and a big party. They weren't small parties. They had to be for thousands of people. That was the thing, you know? So it was a certain warehouse that we had to find and we'd be searching all these different industrial estates in the areas mentioned, Warmstow, um Edmonton. They were all quite linked together. And we found this warehouse just by chance on Ferry Lane. Ferry Lane is actually quite a main artery that connects one part of England to the other. And there are lots of motorways around this area and it's quite industrial. And on the screen right now is a Google Earth view of Ferry Lane and the surrounding area. And it looks quite different to how it looked when we did events. When When we did our events here, it looked quite different from this and for those that are looking are watching you can see that there's been all of these houses it looks like a, a housing estate of some sort and you can see down in the bottom here this housing estate and all this area on the right and all this area all around here this is all new completely new so just for anyone that's listening this whole area was quite industrial And there wasn't that many buildings around here. This was, a lot of this area was quite marshland. So there was a lot of marshlands. Ferry Lane is this main archery. And it is, in the middle of the picture, is a canal. And the Ferry Lane warehouse was actually down this canal. And although the warehouse is gone now, this generally is the area where that warehouse was. And I'm just basically showing a building standing next to a canal seen from Google Earth. And what you would do, you would drive off of the road, I'm just pointing out the road up here, and you just basically would drive along by the canal and, you know, the warehouse would be along there. And we, and we literally found this building by chance. We, we, we rolled down this canal, by this canal, and the last building we was going to turn around, it was just to do a 360. And we saw the building, it was like, what's this? Right now I'm showing a picture of the exterior of Ferry Lane, seen from the other side of the canal. And we kind of rolled up past there. And we rolled up to do a 360 here, as I said. But I noticed we noticed that The door was open, and there was a door. You can't really see the door from this photograph because it's it's around the side, around here. And so we stopped, went inside, and it was this huge, beautiful building. Boom! And this picture here is a picture of myself. And for those listening, they're all of the photographs that I'm showing viewers, you will be able to see on my website well not on my website on the 88podcast.com website and it will be with the show notes so you will be able to see all these photographs and this photograph is basically a photograph of me inside the venue for those watching there's this doorway here which is basically a door at the far end of the building that was the entrance that was where everybody came into the building Uh, and there's a fire escape there which we later talk about. We try and, in these fire escapes that I'm now currently showing on the right side of this rectangular shaped building, we, um, these were the fire escapes that we tried to escape when the police came, you know, the riot police came to shut the building down. And we tried to escape from these doors here, but that's forward in the story. We found the building and we thought, that's it, we're doing this. And we came outside we came out on this side of this building on this side and so it's facing the this entrance to the canal and then he came cycling out and we could see that he was a security guard so we had to actually acknowledge him because he could see that we were walking out of this building even though we hadn't broken into the building and he we kind of said hello mate and we called him over and we asked him did you know who owned the building he said no he said he was the security guard for the industrial estate. And we asked him if he would be willing to take a bung, which is a few quid, to turn a blind eye this coming Saturday night. It wasn't it wasn't even like a massive advance warning, like, you know, in in a month's time. It was it was like a few days from now. Was, can we give you I can't even remember how much we offered the chap. It would have been hundreds. It wouldn't have been thousands. We would have given the owner thousands of pounds to rent that venue. But a security guard, we probably would have given him hundreds of pounds and a bottle of whiskey or something like that. But I can't remember how much we offered him, but we offered it to him. He said he couldn't take it because he doesn't really run that section. That section is run by... A chap that lives on the houseboats now looking at the photograph the aerial view of the area those watching you can see these houseboats down here now there's houseboats all along there now but back in the day i think like the houseboats were only along here and they went back and around this bend and he said that so the security guard said that the chap who runs those boats, his name's Martin. And he said that he was on the boats at that time. And he said that he would introduce us to him. And he took us down there and he called Martin and Martin, this chap came off, this hippie-like guy, invited us onto the boat. We got onto the boat. He had, you know, he was a real hippie, English dude. He had a, a gorgeous black African girlfriend, you know, on the boat. The whole, you know, the whole boat was in a real bohemian vibe, and he was smoking these bongs. You know, him and his girlfriend, basically. You know, and I mean, she looked so out of place there; it was unbelievable. But she was, you know, definitely his girlfriend. And he was a really cool dude, you know. And and his name was Martin, and Martin, he basically was the spokesman for everyone on the boats. And the arrangement, the arrangement that we had with Martin was that we would pay everybody to go away for the weekend everyone on those boats if they would just you know turn a blind eye and allow us to do our party on this Saturday night and Martin was most insistent on actually coming to the party he really wanted to come he was like dude can I come I was like of course mate you know and he you know, he'd been to like Woodstock type events. He was a real hippie, he was much older than us. He was probably in his fifties at the time and he was still dressed like, you know, like a hippie, 70, 1970s hippie, but really nice, beautiful man. Um, He said, he agreed, they all agreed, that was great. So that was it, we'd found our venue. We were super excited about it and it really marked like an independence day for us because we'd been doing parties with sunrise up to this point this was i think this was going to be the first party that we were going to do without sunrise since leaving Leaside road and the the reason for that is you know i I mean i'm going to speak about this event on another podcast we did this event with sunrise lots happened during the event So much so that I'm going to do a podcast just about that event. But at the end of the event, the event, Tony, you know, it was early morning, you know, the light, it was light out. Tony had come up to Keith, myself and Andrew and said, lads, I'm really sorry to say, but I can't do parties with you anymore. We were like, dude, what, why? And he said that he had been approached by some EastEnders. Who had basically said to him that, you know, he's from West London and therefore, if he's going to be earning money in East London, he has to pay. And so Tony decided that he wasn't willing to pay. Tony was a West London guy anyway. And Tony decided that he would go down a different route. And he ended up, you know, going to North London. He was getting his protection from, you know, Dave and all of his boys. And so he took a different path. And so this was our first party. And actually on this night, Sunrise was actually having a party somewhere else, if I remember rightly. And so it was, and that was outside of London. So this this was our first event away from Sunrise, and it was gonna be a big event. We needed thousands of people to fill this warehouse up. And so it was quite exciting. We were really thrilled about the whole thing we made our flyer which is here somewhere and so the flyer i'm just for those listening i i'm up the genesis flyer so it's genesis chapter 11 chapter of chapters again this is why i call it the chapter of chapters because it was an exciting time please park sensibly thank you brand new venue Stowe, Dog Track, Leaside Road and White Hart Lane were the venues. Top DJ lineup. Again, in those days, you didn't need to, to name the DJs. The DJs wasn't the highlight of the show. Genesis wasn't the highlight of the show either. The highlight of the show was the social interaction and the music. That was the highlight of the show. Genesis just provided a... An arena to do that with like-minded people from all around the country, but we wasn't the highlight of the show. The highlight of the show was you, was us, was the unity. We didn't need to put DJs' names on there. That wasn't what it was about. So we we made note that it was a private function, not for law enforcement. Arrive right early to ensure entrance because these parties i mean you saw the last one that what i mentioned with sunrise that started at midnight but essentially these parties were starting around 9 10 o'clock but around 8 p.m. the meeting points would be hundreds and hundreds of people would be at the meeting points and so that's why we would say arrive early because within a short amount of time the warehouse would be full of people uh, we are totally legal fire officers on site 10k turbo sound spectacular lighting and lasers officials at all points until 6am that was another thing that we did i can't remember if they stayed until six but we actually paid people to stay at these meeting points because lots of people will go to other events smaller parties or clubs or wherever they were going because although it's february although it's been this huge surge in warehouse parties and people are kind of they're still going to the clubs but the highlight of the weekend of the week is going to a massive warehouse party with thousands of people and i'm not you know uh discrediting anyone in saying that but you know being in a warehouse with thousands of people it was incredibly exciting so we would leave someone sitting in in a car at these meeting points, and whoever came along, you know, because a lot of people didn't have mobile phones at that time, we all had mobile phones, but general the general public, they didn't have mobile phones. And so for them, it was a task of going to phone boxes and in those times, public phone boxes, they were coin operated. And so you had to have a certain amount of coins. And so it was a task, it was a laborious task to actually keep phoning up these meeting point lines. And for ours, we all, most of the time, we had people at the other end of the line. So you would actually speak to a person. But for the, these meeting points, it was important that we had someone that was, you know, pushing people down the chain, pushing people down the line and sending them to us. So that's what that was about. The management reserved the right to admission, strictly over 18. We wasn't interested in kids. Press, in their sensationalized news, said that we were trying to attract kids. And kids were, you know, it. and the ages they mentioned with the kids were like 11. They loved saying that, 11 or 15. They loved that word, and they loved saying teenagers, and they loved mind-bending. So we wasn't trying to attract children, kids. Or even teenagers we wasn't teenagers ourselves we were i was 22 at this point and we did this little story and because this was like a um birthday card type flyer you know it was you know birthday card shape flyer and so on the inside on the front was the genesis logo and on the inside there was a small story and it read The Genesis chapters began in a small deserted London street where three young minds pulled together in the hope of bringing a new light to the world of entertainment, calling this form of entertainment Genesis. With the support and incentive from you, the people who make everything possible, we are truly thankful. We offer to you our very own exclusive limited members club and promise the struggle will continue. I mean, we're 22-year-old lads, you know, go on, boys. Let's have a look at the members card. I've mentioned members cards there. And at this point, this was the membership card. This was our members card to get into a Genesis event. And as you can see on the back of the card, so what I'm showing now is a Genesis card. And again, this is the, the green man logo, which is the Genesis face. And it's in between two columns uh, with Genesis on it, Genesis member, and at the bottom it has the Empire Strikes Back. And, And it's been called an occult symbol, these images put together like this. But, you know, we had nothing to do with the occult and it wasn't occultic to us. But again, it shows you how powerful occult symbolism was at the time because, you know, we came up with something that is considered to be the occult, but... It was. It's not intentional. And on the back, this card is not transferable. Anyone found misusing drugs of any kind will be banned. The management reserved the right to refuse entry. So it's professional, professional setup. So it's the eleventh of February. We only go to you only go to the warehouse on the day of the event. It should be noted. We you never went to the warehouse. You never made it too busy. I mean, although we had permission to be there as such, because we didn't have any permission from the owner. And I should say that I've mentioned somewhere in another podcast that I actually met the owner. I mean, he said I met him that night. I'm not sure if he's getting me confused with somebody else, but I actually ended up meeting the owner and it was a really funny scene. We were doing, I was being interviewed by a BBC crew outside the warehouse it was it was probably about 10 years later and we were being filmed and then this this older gentleman came out i mentioned it in the labyrinth podcast and this older gentleman came out orthodox jewish man and he was standing behind the guy who was interviewing me you know really interested in what i was saying and i was speaking about breaking into this where well not breaking in i was speaking about the party that we did at this warehouse and he was kind of floating around so i I started speaking to him and and he said to me i remember you i own this warehouse i own this warehouse in 1989 and i remember you and i was like what he said yes he said um i came to you on that night and he said you had a lawyer with you and you pointed me to the lawyer And he said, and you wandered off. And he said, and I I never saw you again. And he said, I searched. My lawyer searched for you for two years. After that, he said, I wanted to sue you for the money that I spent cleaning up the warehouse after, and you know, any lost earnings that he might have had from being able to rent the warehouse out. And he was really nice about it, for sure, you know. But obviously, he well, he was well over it, so he he was quite nice about it. On the day we arrived, and we arrived with our, with our crew, with our cleanup crew, which were, which were some of our friends, this Motley crew. And the, these were our Genesis wrecking crew. You know, this little crew here, we could turn a warehouse over in hours. And that's what we used to do. Uh, I just named some of these, some of these lads. There's, that's myself and Charlie the Pitbull. This is Lloyd. This is Paul, this is Andrew, Kenny, and Gary. This was Keith's brother. And after this, Paul went on to become a UK boxing champion, which is gone, Sam. Yeah, so this was our wrecking crew. And so we could go in a warehouse and turn it over in a really short amount of time. And we literally did. And we actually got famous for that. And you can see, look, the lads are at work now. This warehouse didn't actually need much cleaning up. So it was quite It was just ready to go. So when we arrived, you know, we're cleaning up and we're all happy and stuff. You could see I'm over the moon now. I'm quite happy. I'm dancing in the warehouse. It's life's looking amazing. And then this is winter. And so at some point we checked the electricity source. Obviously when we arrived, it was daylight, so we didn't need any lights, but when I checked the fuse box, which was a massive industrial fuse box, which is, was in this photograph that's on the screen right now for those listening. It's a picture of me in the middle of the warehouse like doing some type of jig. And you can see people in the background cleaning or whatever. But what I'm trying to show in the far end is this black box, that black box there, that was the electricity fuse box. And when I looked in that fuse box, that fuse box was totally destroyed. Some it literally looks like, like someone had, had smashed it with something, you know. And so, straight away, it was like, Oh no. And I remembered that when we were flying one night outside the wag club, we met there used to be a taxi rank there, a, a minicab rank there that was operated by Jerry. And those used to go to the wag club will remember Jerry. Jerry would stand out on Wardar Street, and if you wanted a cab, you would go to him when you came out of the club. Well, when you came out of anywhere, but essentially that was where he was based, outside of Web club. And he was a really good organiser, and he, he was, he was. I don't know if he looked old or, you know, he was probably a good age at that time. We were 22, he was probably a good 40, 45, I don't know. But Jerry was a really nice chap, and he would really organise all these taxis, all these cabs. And I had the idea, and obviously over the time that I'd been going to Wag Club, you know, I'd met Jerry loads of times. He'd got me loads of cabs, so I, I was on speak good speak in terms of him. One night, he introduced me to a black cab driver uh, who was American, and his name was W. D. And WD said he was a an electrician and that he could you know fix anything he knew that I was doing warehouses and he said you know if you ever need an electrician give me a bell i would come any time of the night phone me anytime so he was like okay so this was the time that I called him and I've never used him before I just called him and said look and he lived in South London and he came all the way from this was North London it was an hour's drive just to get to the building and he came he looked at the the smashed fuse box and he said I think I can probably do it but I'm going to need to get some other tools back at home I'm going to have to build a fuse and that's what he did he left and he was going to be like a couple of hours so we had to wait for a couple of hours that was now biting I have to say it was waiting around a couple of hours for WD to come back and it started to get dark and at one point we had to turn on the lights of the car headlights we we had some music on as well to be fair and on this particular night I have to say we had lasers we rented we I met this guy who had some lasers I don't know where I met him I still remember his name his name was Martin um I know there's two Martins in this story, but his name was Martin. I don't know where I met him, but I met him somewhere. And when I saw he, he had lasers, I just kind of approached him and said, look, mate, you know, we do these, you know, I gave him the spill. I didn't say we were breaking into warehouses. to See, you know, we're doing these parties. We need lasers. Would you come down? Let, we, I want to hire them. They were expensive. I remember that. They were, it was about 1,500 quid, something like that for the lasers. So they wasn't cheap. And we agreed a price, and I'm sure it was around that figure of fourteen hundred pounds and He said he would arrive, so he arrived at this building when it started to get a little bit dark, so he immediately noticed or recognized that we were there we didn't you know we didn't have an electric electricity, so he knew we were there illegally, and he wanted to leave straight away. He was like, "Listen, I can't have anything to do with this." I'm out. So obviously we we pleaded with him not to leave and we offered him him his money there and then because he was concerned that his equipment might get confiscated by the police if everything went wrong. So I convinced him which and I was telling the truth that all he needed to say was that we told him it was an illegal event and if they confiscated his equipment all he needed to do was produce receipts or prove that it was his equipment, which is receipts, and he could have it back. Um, and we offered to pay him all of his money up front, so he he accepted the money. So he had all the money up front. So he started to set up, even though we didn't have any electricity. And then within a couple of hours, WD turned up like an angel. and he went out to the box he was at the box and he put the fuse in and we had light and it was amazing really you know it's like the the fuse box was smashed up and he had built this industrial fuse and we had light now we could plug the lasers in and we could and outside in this far in this photograph in outside this doorway that was took you out to the entrance and there was also some offices that went upstairs. And this is where we basically was through them, you know, our counting rooms upstairs and we were there. And so it gave us our first opportunity to be able to see all these rooms properly. And anyway, to get ourselves sorted out. It didn't take that long to get sorted, but as I said, it started to get a bit dark And we were testing the lasers and Martin, and it was, I think it might've been a two or three color laser. I mean, the idea for the lasers came from unit four. It was unit four and unit four, I got a flyer there. Lenny and Hensel, they'd had the lasers in South London and Keith had been to this party in South London. And he said they had a red laser. And I don't know if I've even told this story before. He said that they had a red laser. I wasn't with him that night. So when I met the laser guy, Martin, I said, okay, what color lasers have you got? Have you got a multicolored laser? Because I knew a red laser had already been done. And he said, I think he he had two different colors, I think, a blue, the traditional blue and green. And so we went with that. We were just happy to have that and we were testing the lasers going through the lasers routine and there was there's shutters on the door which you can actually see in the you can actually see from the photograph of the exterior building there's these shutters that you can see there on the right hand side and i remember we had these shutters they wasn't up to the top but they was up and we were going through the routine with the lasers and then suddenly this policeman well, two policemen come ducking under the shutters and into the building. And I'm standing right there at the time. And they were like, oh, hello, what's going on here? So I, I can't remember what I said to these chaps, because I told two different stories on this night. The police actually came on four occasions this night. And the first time they came was quite early you know there was no one at the building we were still going through the lasers testing the lasers and suddenly these two policemen came you know under the shutter and we were quite shocked and they're like hey what are you doing and the, the first story i gave to the first lot of policemen was that we were doing a special music business party for someone or another i can't remember and they kind, of, and I showed him my contracts, and I showed him the lease, and all this stuff, because we we tried to always vary it. You didn't, you couldn't say the same person every week. So yes, I'd I've told police previously that I was George Michael's, you know, assistant personal manager, and I told them that I'd, I was Channel Four, I was a top guy at Channel Four, and I'd already told them that I was a, a top guy at Sony. So you kind of had to vary your blag a bit. You know, so I can't remember what who I said I was at that time. And he looked at the lasers and he thought they were amazing. The policeman, they looked at the lasers, they thought they were amazing. And he kind of, he looked at my paperwork and he just said, well, look, the boss is on his way. Tell the boss that when he gets here and I'm sure you're all good. So we had to wait for the flat cap to come and he took a bit of time. He didn't come straight away. It took about an hour to come. And the... Constables kind of hung around for that time. And another thing that happened a few days before this party was an old school friend of mine had actually died. And he had gone out partying. He was one of the guys that I actually went to my first parties with at Camden Palace, uh, Gukan. And Gukan was a primary school friend of mine. And we'd all been out and he went home and it was said that he worked out you know he had a home gym he worked out went to sleep and he didn't wake up which was hugely sad for us for us all i'd known him for so long as well Gukan's original crew of people that he was hanging out with in current times was like gary michael you know owen selwyn and all those guys i'm sure i've missed out a couple of people i do apologize but He used to hang out with all those lads and so they were really affected and impacted by it but one of the funniest things that you know in time when i'm trying to analyze it but at that time we never even thought about not taking mdma at the time it wasn't attributed mdma wasn't attributed to his death in any way shape or form and so it was relatively new to the medical world science it was relatively new to the medical world so they were pointing it down to something else but we kind of knew that it must be connected to mdma given the night before he had taken mdma and i remember i one of the things that i said to the laser guy i gave him gucan's uh, name and stuff and i can't remember the messages i'll be lying if i'd say i remember the messages but it definitely would have been along the lines of, you know, Gukan, we love you, brother, you know, something like that. And uh, so we had Gukan's names would be written in lasers, you know, across the warehouse, which it sounds like a weird way of celebrating the death of somebody that had taken MDMA and you're about to take MDMA in celebration of that person. It sounds weird. It was so important to us that feeling of unity that feeling of togetherness and at that time we could only feel that with the use of this emotional accelerator that we you know known as mdma but that's what it was it was an emotional accelerator it cut through lots of red tape and it brought you face to face with your emotion and that's why many countries around the world have decriminalized MDMA and they actually work with it in environments whereby they need to draw out emotion. We didn't even think about not taking MDMA in Gukan's name. The the decision was already made. There There was no decision to make. We were going to take MDMA in his name and we were going to write his name with lasers across the top of this warehouse and that was it. So it was quite a strange dichotomy really, but it was what it was. We were young and we felt that he would love that. We felt that he would appreciate that because I'd spent many days on that dance floor with him, you know, happy as anything, happier than I've ever seen him in his life. We were all happier than we'd ever seen in in our lives. And I'm not just singling him out, we were all happier than we'd ever been in our lives. And we were experiencing that moment together with a bunch of friends and a bunch of extended friends, but your immediate crowd, you're a bunch of friends. And we were, so we were going to experience that feeling of togetherness once again, without Gukan, but with Gukan at the center of that emotional experience. And that's what we did, but that's to come. We So we waited for this flat cap, he arrived. And, and by that time we turned off the laser. And when he the flat cap arrived, the other constables that were there, they immediately said, turn on the laser to show the chief. So I, I got someone to turn the light off and we we pressed on the laser. And within thirty seconds, the captain turned round to me and said, Are you doing that on purpose? I said, No. He he asked me to put it on. Gave him all of the documents. He was happy with the documents. And they if they went off and left us alone. So the party was on. So when, when this moment happened, when police came and they kind of green lighted you, That's how we kind of saw it. It was like a rubber getting a rubber stamp because we we knew that when you used to have to blag these parties, you really only had to blag the first lot that came, you know, the 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 first wave that came because they would never it would never normally be one lot of police. It would always be the constables would come. The constables normally didn't have the power to say yeah or no. If you ran away from the party, you know, if you ran away different story you know then they would declare the parties illegal and they would stop it but given that we were fronting them with legal documentation or fake legal documentation they had to phone they had to contact the captain and then the captain would have to come and the captain you know they're a lot harder to blag than the, the constables but you still had to have play a hard hand with the captains i mean they obviously wouldn't take any nonsense but you still had to play a hard hand with them but normally when they was gone that was it no more police would ever come and bother you but on this particular night after this time they came twice but so this was the first contact that I had with them so off they went they were gone and then that was it you know the security arrived We started fixing the venue up and getting it all ready to go because obviously we're being green-lighted. And then probably about an hour later, so it was still quite dark, some people were given the warehouse venue out, the address out. And so I remember there was a small line of people outside of the warehouse, probably 100, 200 people. So they were lining up outside. And then a flat cap arrived. Another police captain arrived on his own. And the, you know he comes to the front door, the security were all there, so they all stopped him. He said that he wanted to speak to the boss, so they all accompanied him. Well, they kept him outside, actually, and they said, come outside, he's there. So I said, you can bring him in because I wanted him to. It was important that he saw inside because the other things that we were trying to relay is that we wasn't selling alcohol so you can't make up a story about there being alcohol on sites and we had illuminated fire we had our own set of illuminated fire exit signs and all this stuff at this point and we used to use them and so you couldn't just you know stop the party just like that you know and so it was important that we let them see that you know and again they wasn't used to being invited inside buildings of you know of acid ass parties illegal parties I was not inviting inside to have a look, you know. So I'd invite him inside. So on this evening, he came inside, surrounded by the security. He was asking me general questions, and then he said, "Can I speak to you outside alone?" And so all the security all stepped forward, and I, I'm always tempted to mention some of their names because, you know, they're no, they're all known guys, these security guys, and. I think a couple of them wouldn't actually mind. Most of them probably would, but I don't think a couple of them will actually mind. But there are books written about these dudes. So in essence, you know, their names are out there in the public domain as being who they were. But at the same time, you never really know how people are going to take it. Uh, obviously, you don't want to be considered as being snitching. So you try not to say names. So I won't say the name. And so he says, come outside. Can I speak to you outside? So I said, okay. Now, earlier on that day, for some reason, a lot of the time when we did the parties, we would always have hired cars. And we used to have a company in Hoxton that we used to get these hired cars from. And we never used to have to produce our, we spent a lot of money with these guys and we never had to produce driving licenses or anything like that. We, we just turn up and say, can we have a car? You know, here's, a month's rent whatever and give them a month's rent up front and no questions were asked and so we always had these hired cars and we never really cared what happened to these hired cars and so we'd bring them on these sites and we also knew that if for some reason it was involved in whatever it might have been involved in and the police were called we also knew that the guys at these hire shop even though we didn't know them they were villains we knew that they would have our backs you know they're only interested in getting the dough for their cars and we were spending i don't know maybe a couple of grand a month with them on different cars which was a lot for that time and but for this on this particular night i can't remember what happened but i remember i was at my mum's house in hackney and i didn't have a car um and i don't think i could get a cab and my mum she had a real old banger outside and it was a fiat 126 where where is it? i've got a picture of one here somewhere for those who don't know what a fiat 126 looks like so on the screen i got a, a fiat 126 and it was probably that year it was an old fiat 126 it was black it was probably worth 50 quid whatever you know and she said why don't you take that i mean she never really used to drive it but she said why don't you take the fiat 126 so I thought, sod it, you know. So I, I drove the Fiat one two six to this particular warehouse. It should be noted to so, to so this particular policeman. I actually told him that we were from Channel Four and that we were producing a TV documentary and that we we were kind of shooting a load of B roll. Uh, he he asked us where he asked me where all the cameras were, and I said that all the cameras were coming later. At the moment, we were just setting up the sets. We have a load of extras outside waiting to come in and that's it. So he kind of accepted it. And he said, let's go outside. The security didn't want it, but they said, okay. So I said, it's fine, you know, what's he gonna do? So we went outside and then he kind of pulled me away from the security. So it was only he and I. And he said, listen boy, I know that you're not here shooting a TV documentary. And I know there's a lot of money to be earned in this and i said no mate we're shooting a tv documentary i mean had i known that he was trying to get a bribe or something i would have said "Mate, i will (laughs) pay you (laughs) i don't know if i'm allowed to say that but had he said had he hinted that he was willing to take a bribe i would have gladly given him a bribe it was only after i thought about it i thought why is he saying that he knows we're earning loads of money but i was 22 you know and i said no i said we are from channel four and i insisted that we are from channel four and the next words were okay show me what car you drive <laughs> so on other days, our other non-hired vehicles quite nice. We had a couple of really nice cars on the firm. I don't like speaking about all that stuff, but we had some nice cars on the firm. And on this night, I'm driving this fifty-pound Fiat one two six, like you see on the screen here. And so I said, I pointed over at the Fiat one two six. There was about there was about ten cars outside huddled, parked together. That was all the team's cars. And I said, that's my car there. And he said, I don't believe it. I walked over to the car and obviously I had the keys, mate. Opened the door, put the keys in the engine, started it up. And he looked at me, he said, okay. (laughs) And I said, there you go. He said to me, how many people are you expecting tonight? And I said, we're expecting about 300 people. They're all extras. And they're all going to be here for a specific amount of time, blah, 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 blah. He said, OK, I'm going to let this go on, but I'm going to come back. I think he said like at 12 o'clock or something with a full riot crew. And if there were more than 300 people here, I'm going to stop the party. I said, OK, no, I got it. And so, you know, he was still very polite about it. And he said, and off he went. He disappeared into the night. Within probably 10 minutes of him leaving, I mean, he probably knew about it on the radio anyway, about a 1,000 people turned up and Phil started filling out in the building. So the party was happening. The party was on. Thousands of people were turning up. And... I wish I had more photographs of the event, but as I said, we, we wasn't, no one took any photographs. If you've got any photographs out there, I honestly would love to see them. So within a within a few, you know, within an hour or so, within a couple of hours, the, the warehouse itself was packed solid. And I'm still showing that picture on the screen of me standing in a warehouse doing some type of jig. But there's actually the other end is probably equal to that size or a bit more in length, you know. Um, It was packed out. The party was really great. It was such a really great atmosphere. So many things worthy of note happened on that evening. I can't go through them all. Within a short amount of time, there were thousands of people here thousands the warehouse were absolutely packed solid it, the atmosphere was electric it was an amazing night it really was and i remember there was traffic jams i, I remember i don't know like one two in the morning i came up i came, i heard that there were some traffic jams on the main road and on ferry lane as i said it was this main archery and to have a traffic jam there there was traffic jams there at rush hour, but to have a traffic jam there and in these early hours of the morning, it was just like, it was really eye opening. And I, I remember running down there to find out what was going on. Um, And there had been a, some sort of crash there and some of our friends was involved. It wasn't a serious crash. And we, I remember we all picked this car up and we moved it to the side. But and while we we're standing there, I could see all these SPG vans because it was a traffic jam, they were trying to wriggle and work their way through the cars. It gave us enough time to run back down to the warehouse. And we went up to the money room. It was just like saying like, police, they come in and they come in to raid the party. And we'd collected thousands of pounds at that point. Um, and we started packing them in bags and boxes. And I remember I ran downstairs and we didn't quite have enough things to put the money in. And I remember I ran downstairs to the warehouse, and there was these girls, and they was part of the acid house uniform. People would wear dungarees; they had these jean dungarees on. And I remember I ran up to them and just said, "Hey, you know, can you do us a favor? Can you help us out? Can we kind of hide some money in your dungarees?" And they were like, "Yeah, cool, no problem." We took them up to the office, and you know, we were just stuffing all these this money into their dungarees. Um. And we'd done it to a few of the girls. I mean thousands of pounds. And we went out and we went down into because at this time they were coming through the the gates. We had there was a, there was a small little yard that was around the warehouse and had some gates. So they were still the police were outside, but they were more or less outside the gates. And so they were here. And so we shifted down from the counting room and we shifted down into the warehouse. And again, you know, people don't know what's going on in the warehouse and I had a walkie-talkie. With the walkie-talkie, I was getting updates of exactly where the police were and exactly what they were doing. And they came in through the front door, walkie-talkie keyed up so I could hear what was going on. And you could hear the captain, you know, asking for me by name. What I forgot to mention earlier on was when this flat this solo flat cat came, this captain came, for some this was the first time that I'd ever given my real name. Something just told me that I need to give this guy my real name. and I was so committed to the character and I was so committed to the event happening that I gave him my real name. The policeman looked at the queue and he said, point someone out who can confirm your identity. And I looked amongst a queue of people and I could really only kind of spot one person that I knew, knew my full name. And the lad himself, he had done a bit of porridge. He was a reformed character, but he'd done a bit of porridge. And, you know, he was an old school chap type of dude. You know, he's not going to talk about it, people, mention any names. And so we had to go up to him. So I had to walk up to him with this policeman with me and say to him, you know, Steve, I would call him Steve. i will say his first name. I said, Steve, do me a favour. Can you tell this policeman my my real name? And he said, No. <laughs> and I said, No, Steve. Please, could you, could you tell him? Because if you don't tell him, there's no part. And he was like, I don't want to get involved. <laughs> so I was like, Steve, mate. Honestly, if you don't tell him my name, it's over. You know. And so he really didn't want to say it, but he said it you know and he, he got it out and he was just like ah uh, you know kicking himself for actually saying it to be fair and that was it you know that was confirmation so he went so when and that was it the pipe was on blah 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 and so when the policeman came into the reception he was calling out my name you know so i was like oh mate you know and they came in to the main bit of the warehouse And at the time I'm showing the photograph, back to the photograph of me standing in the middle of the warehouse doing that jig type thing. And the DJ stand and everything was set on the left-hand side of the picture. So the DJ stand was there. Now the door, the entrance that they came through to the warehouse is on the far end of the building to the right, this one here. And so the police, the riot police, they were in full riot gear. I can't remember how many there were, maybe a couple of dozen or a dozen even and they came through with their riot gear and they came up to the 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 sound system and the lights and everything and the djs here and i just basically said to them shut it all down it's over and so again i could hear there's arguments going on about who had the authority to close the system down and everyone was saying wayne's not here you can't do it without wayne blah 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 and he was just you could just hear him, just shut it all down. Like, obviously, the, the the lighting, I can't remember who did the sound. I can't remember if it was uh, the Special K guys, Stuart and that. I can't remember who did the sound that night or whether it was um, the Mad Hatters. I can't remember because we used the Mad Hatters as well. Uh, Brian and the boys. Yes, Brian and Steven. And yes, yes. And we used them. So I can't remember if it was them, but obviously what they did was they turned the lights off as well. So all the lights went off, the sound system went off and there was thousands of people in the building. And then suddenly people started lighting lighters. And I mean, that happened quickly within seconds, people started lighting lighters. And then the chant went up. I mean, I'll never forget it. You know, it's thousands of people and they were just starting going, you know, I see. Acid, and you know, you know the the famous acid house chants. Acid, and it just got louder and louder and louder, and the the policemen. You could see that because at this point, I'd found a bit of a vantage point where I could see what was going on, and they couldn't really see me. And you know, I was standing here with all the girls with the dungarees, which had all this money. I mean, I had some bags with me as well, but they had all their money stuffed in the thing. And I was over there and I had Keith and Andy, and um, I can't remember if Andy was there to be fair, but I had definitely Keith, we had Keith. There was a moment, and I think, again, I, I don't want to be, I think he wouldn't mind me saying, but, one of our security guys was Colton Leach. And you know Carlton Leach has become famous for the rise of the foot soldier and a couple of other gangster films and books and all this stuff. And, and so one of the security guys was Colton. And to be fair to Carlton, Carlton, regardless of what I've said about the, you know, what happened to me personally in this, Carlton was never one of the guys that was a bully. There was other guys on the security that were bullies, but Carlton wasn't one of them. He was always at the back and you could always see from the look in his face that he didn't agree with what was going on to us. You know, and we since we was friends and you know we, when he sees me it's a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. But so he was one of the security guards. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because in his film Rise of the Foot Soldier Carlton actually plays out a scene from this party. And it's one of these moments, because what happened on that night at the chapter of Chapters in Ferry Lane was that Carlton took his first MDMA tablet. He took his first E. And I remember I was, at one point, I was walking through the crowd. And I remember I looked over and I could see him. And he was actually, it wasn't even at the door. He was actually in the crowd and he was dancing his tits off and I'm sure I mentioned it in, in my book and, but I didn't mention who it was. So this is the first time I'm actually declaring that that chap in my book, the security guard that I observed, who I previously observed to be a quite a violent dark East end gangster was dancing and he was with without inhibition. You know, he was dancing his tits off and you could see he was happy. And I made a comment, I think, in my book saying that when I, I looked at him and I just, I, I said something to the effect of, if, we, if, if MDMA can change a man like this, you know, this hard-edged man, it can change anybody. And And this was his first actual ecstasy experience again and the reason i mention it is because the last time i spoke to carlton was years ago a decade ago or something and he said to me it was by telephone i just happened to be in a room and he was on the telephone to them and they said oh wayne's here and we had a conversation and he said to me um have you seen rise of the foot soldier and i said yeah of course and he said did you see the genesis part and i said i'm not sure i saw that part and he was like, yeah, he said, you know, when I was in the club and he said, and it's the scene where he takes a knee for the first time and he's in the club with his black mate and they're standing there. And at one point he turns around to his mate and he says, I love you, bruv, you know that, didn't you? <laughs> and then that whole scene of these really hard dudes like, yeah, man, I love you, you know, I love you, didn't you? You love you, mate, you know? And that was a, a shared experience for so many males, it didn't matter if you was hard or not. But that was that was so many that was a shared experience for so many males that we all had, and and the females, you know. But as a as a male, uh, I, I can only say it from a male perspective, and we all had that moment where you looked to your friend and said, "Mate, I love you, man." You know, because the difference with the females or women was that they could tell their friends that they loved them that for, for women it was an everyday thing they could share their you know inner emotion where with men we were always taught to hide that inner emotion and to suddenly feel safe enough that because you was risking losing your friend before mdma if you told your friend that you loved them your male friend you risk losing them and stereotypical or not however you want to frame it that was a reality of it that was how males were conditioned who came from these male dominated tough environments poor environments too i should should add to that and so to share love to 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 say to your mate i love you mate that was a big moment and it's not to get punched in the face and for your friend to reciprocate that, it then might like, kind of green lit having a hug. You, you know what I mean? It was those small little moments that opened up these doorways. And then once I could hug you, I could hug this dude. I could hug fucking, I could hug anybody. I could express my emotional feelings to anyone. And so that's why I'm barking on about, you know, male and men or whatever. And so it, it, for men, it allowed us to open that channel. So watching Carlton, you know, dancing, you know, and into, and for him to remember that in Rise of the Foot Soldier, you know, I, I remembered. And so I thought that, that was definitely worthy of of note. And also on that night, what happened was all the security, at one point I was upstairs in this, in the counting room. While I was talking about security, I was upstairs in the counting room, we all were. Myself, Andrew, I'm sure Andrew was there. Was he there? I can't really remember if Andrew was there, but certainly myself and Keith were up there. I can't remember exactly who was in the counting room that night, but myself, I was in there. I remember Keith was in there. I think my sister Shrine was in there. And all of the security came into the room, and there was a, there was a lot of them, and there was about fifteen, sixteen of them, and they were these guys were. It was a tough door, you know. They were a hard East End door. They were all geezers, you know. We we were twenty two. They were all in their thirties, easy in their thirties, organized, and that's what they do. And they basically laid it on the line for us and. It sounds harsh in in some ways, and it was harsh and, and it was shocking to me, to all of us. And they wanted 25% of our money, of our profit. And in return for 25% of the profit, we get 24-hour protection. And they supply all the security for all of our events and they cover the security costs from their end of the 25%. Bloody good deal as far as I was concerned, because they were there 24-7, you know, and you know, people didn't even look at you in a crossed way when they knew that they were in the shadows behind you type thing, and, and that was important, and the reason why that was important was because that stopped dudes from coming to try and rob you, and lots of party promoters, some of them are admitting it publicly, but there are others that are not admitting it publicly, but a few promoters were robbed at gunpoint, you know, or by a machete or, or some type of threatening weapon. And so you did need to watch that back door, you know, because um, there, there was no protection for promoters. We were being blasted in the press. So we were public enemy number one. No one cared what happened to us. So a bunch of villains coming down and rob all the party promoters. You know who cares we agreed to a deal 25 percent, 24 hour protection we all we plan we didn't plan to stop doing these events we planned on keep going there was no sense of let's walk away from this because way up what we interpreted this was that this if we if the security do their job no one would ever know that they even existed you know because that was what it was, it was them, it wasn't them bringing their door policies or their door attitudes, because all these guys, they all came from doors, you know, of East End venues and they're all super tough, you know, to deal with those East End clientele. These were all the guys that you had on the doors of villains clubs. So they were there to make sure that, you know, no one messed around. So when they came to us, to our environment, it was important, and we had these conversations with them. It was important that they didn't bring that energy, that that grunty energy, we pull you out the back and smash your face in, energy, to acid ass parties. And we told them nobody gets their heads kicked in here. No one's getting dragged out the back. No one's getting beaten up. They can do whatever they like inside that building. Sure. Of messing with our bar and short of messing with us, you know, so they could do whatever they like. So we didn't need that energy, and they accepted that. And to be fair, they did follow that code, and they, they didn't bring that energy. They were very gentle when it came to the public, so we agreed. And lo and behold, within an hour, well, it could have been a couple of hours, whatever. Some downstairs on the door and you know we just had like a table (laughs) across the staircase and you know he's just taking money and the security were all in the the, this reception area and they were letting three or four people in at a time they would search them take the money and in they go next thing was these three black guys and they wasn't really wearing the uniform of acid and that immediately stood out to me but within seconds of them walking through the door, one of them pulled out this gun. Well, they all pulled out guns, but one of them pulled out a gun and he was pointing it in my face. And he said, give me the money. And I mean, I was shocked. I mean, it was, it was shocking. It was scary. It was really shocking. But within seconds of that happening, the security, Had some tools with them and they pulled theirs out, and it was like reservoir dogs. You had one pointing at me, you know, one pointing at him, 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 him. and the security. And so I'm just standing there and I just was silent. I wasn't saying anything, I was just more or less looking down this barrel. Not wanting to, I'm not wanting the guy to shoot me by mistake. I didn't think he was going to, I wasn't going to give him the money. I knew that. I knew that he wasn't going to walk out here with money because these dudes, there's just no way. And this is before the guns came out. When he actually said it, in a split second, I knew that's not going to happen. So I just stayed silent. I didn't say a word. And then all this happened, you know. And I I was looking down the barrel, silent, and that was it. And then, so there was conversations happening between the security and the guys. And at the time, it was scary, you know. And the scariest thing was, I was scared that if you, if you shock this guy, the guy had the finger on the trigger, so I was scared that if he shocks him, in some way, he's just going to sh- accidentally shoot me. You know, it was like, no way he's going to miss from that, you know, from the distance of the gun to my face, you know? And so I was just silent, as looking, looking, just looking straight ahead and looking at the barrel and looking at him. And the security was calm. They were so calm. They had their guns against the foreheads of these dudes. So now these dudes are just completely in shock, but the the security was so calm. He said, listen, pal, if I was you, put that thing away and sod off. Words to that effect, you know? And the fellow was so shocked, he was just saying, what, and he was just saying, look, mate, it's on top. You ain't walking away with no dough. If you put your thing away, you can walk away, lads. We ain't got time for this nonsense. We got things to do because outside there was a massive queue of people they couldn't see what was going on in in this in this foyer because they'd shut the doors but there was a massive queue of people outside so there was just what are you saying what what we can go and they're like yeah you can go and they're like you're serious and they're like yeah and they're like well why are you still holding the thing to my head it was because you got the thing to his head and in the end Glad that my boys got quite angry with them and just like, mate, put it away. i wise, you know. And so they were like, Yeah, as long as we can walk out of here and stuff, and they're like, Yeah, you can walk out of here. But this conversation probably took a, a minute, there was two minutes, it was a very quick process <laughs> of events, you know. It happened so quickly, the whole process, you know. And he was basically saying, look, just leave. Leave with the thing, put your guns away, and F off. And they were like, are you sure you're not going to do anything to us? And they're like, mate, just F off. But you've got to put your things away, because we can't have anyone outside seeing all this nonsense. And So the geezers, the yardies, because they said they were from Tottenham somewhere, you know, when they came in to demand the money, they were like, we're from blah, blah. This is our manner. Give us the money. I just remember that bit. I said, I was just like, just sod off. And so they put the thing away. When they when they was convinced that they wasn't all going to get done, they put the things away and then they left. And it was like, damn. <laughs> so that was... You know, they earned their 25% right there. You know, <laughs> they earned their 25% right there. So it's not all bad. When people hear about these stories, it's not all bad. Although they try to make it out like it's, it's bad and it's unique to us, it, it wasn't all bad. I, I I I had a bit of a delayed reaction to this gun being in my face. And I knew that Keith was on the boat. Keith was, Keith was so funny because Keith was quite a small frame chap like myself. Um, but he's got some balls, you know? And I remember he was on the boat because we'd been saving some of the money and putting it onto Martin's boat. This is the hippie that we met who gave us permission to be there. And remember, we actually had paid for everybody to have the weekend away. And if I could just. The conversation that I had with Joe from Labyrinth in the podcast with Joe, he said that when he because they came after us, he said that when they done the party, that the the boats, these the houseboats were all part of the party. So that's how they you know they'd progressed. But at this point, they wasn't. We had we just had one we was just on Martin's boat where we were taking the money from the warehouse to Martin's boat. And we're t- I think we were also taken to somewhere else as well. And um, I remember I went over to the boat to see Keith because they didn't know what had happened. And I was like, mate, they just had things pointing in my face, blah, 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 blah. But when I walked up to them, Keith, he was having a competition of who could sniff the biggest bloody trench lines, basically, you know. And he was with these massive security guys who really should be able to sniff more than him, you know. And he was just, you know, he was just battering and went sniffing. You know, that was one of Keith's thing. He was very competitive, so whatever it was, he, he was competitive about it. You know, <laughs> didn't matter what it was, he was just a competitive person all round. And I, um, so they thought it was really funny, but I remember I went back to the the building, and I went through the front door, and when I went through the front door. I just felt this surge of positive energy and warmth because it was cold outside. And there was just this, this surge of positive energy just came through that door and just completely just engulfed my my essence. And I remember, because at that point, I was having two minds of whatever I actually wanted to carry on. You know, I had these guns in my face, the security had... Said they wanted twenty five percent, and the security. When they were talking, they were saying that there were a load of other villains that were watching us, and for them to stand on the door and face these other villains, they have to know that they're getting twenty five percent, which is fair. And so that was a heavy weight as well, you know. So I was, and then these yardies so i wasn't really sure whether i wanted to carry on and i I walked back to this warehouse and i came through this door here people that can see that photograph of me um in the warehouse the same one i've been talking about all the time i came through that door and this surge of energy came through that door and with it came positivity and hope and with that positivity and hope i was just I realized I couldn't stop. I realized that this was just a small part of it. And this small part of it, this one area of darkness, it was almost a yin-yang. It was like almost like, well, this can't exist without that. And that was the reality, and that was the yin-yang of having to have these types of security on board. It Without them, we couldn't do the party because if you had no one, I mean, even if when you rented some random security team, after the if they, well, it happened to many people I know, you know, they you end up getting robbed by the security team itself. That was um, happened back in those unlicensed security days. It's all licensed now. It's all different, but that happened quite a lot, you know. Um, so you had to have some type of protection. You had to have someone back in your door. And even today, I've still got people watching the back door. And I, I'm not even involved in anything. It's just one thing I learned back from back then is you, you have to have someone that you can call if you need to. And the higher up they are, the better, the less violence. It's just phone calls. And so I, I always try to, that's what Acid House taught me and my experiences is that always have someone watching the back door, you know? And again, I've said it elsewhere in other podcasts, although we're singled out, ACIDAS promoters are singled out as being the only ones that extortion happened to. Media companies love saying to me, oh, you know, they love highlighting and dramatizing the gangster elements, the kidnappings and stuff of my story. And I always say, well, you know, it, that was a small part, it was a mosquito bite. And I'm not diminishing the gangsters or the experience, I just mean the grand scheme of acid house that was a small part of it, you know? And you know, I'm coming more to believe in the yin yang of the whole thing because without that, them security guys, that party, the party we're speaking about right now certainly wouldn't have happened. So Ferry Lane, and I should also say that Ferry Lane, we did actually did two parties in this building. We came back and did another one because again, I don't think the door was locked or you know within a couple of weeks i think we came back to this building and then we did another party across the road somewhere i can't remember the chronology of events but i think we did one party in this venue and then we went we either did another party in the same venue within a couple of weeks or we went across the road now people that are watching on their screen is the google earth shot of ferry lane the buildings i'm talking about are actually gone now and they were located in this area at the top of the page here and they were an aerodrome type building At some point, I guess there were aeroplanes there, but that was a long time ago because they were quite old buildings. Now, the picture that I'm currently showing on screen is a series of aerodromes. It's five aerodromes in a row. These ones are quite new, but I just wanted to give you a visual of what I'm talking about in terms of what an aerodrome looks like. But the aerodromes that we had were much bigger than these ones the doors alone to these aerodromes were actually probably as big as the front of the aerodromes that you now see on the desktop and there was there were there probably was 5 5 or 6 of them and they were based in that area at the top of the screen i just showed you on the google earth shot and there was rumors that two of them were being used and they were being used by a sound company, and they were full of sound production kits. Someone had mentioned that this was one of the companies that used to hire their sound equipment to Pink Floyd. So there was a Pink Floyd connection, allegedly, to these aerodromes. And the way that we they were situated was that the, the, the entrances to these aerodromes was based off of off of the road off of the main road so you actually had to on the main road was the back of the aerodromes so you had to come round to the front to the entrance to get into the aerodrome the way that they had these buildings set up was that you actually had to drive through three of the aerodromes before you each one individually so you'd go you'd drive through one and then you go round and drive through the next one go round drive through the, through the one after that And what we did was we used two of them as for the car for all the cars. But before we could actually do anything, before we could go into the building and start preparing the building, we had to wait for these this sound production company that I was just speaking about, the Pink Floyd guys, to close business because they were still open. And although it was dark, it was winter, and we could see all their lights on, we couldn't risk going into the warehouse before they had left. And so we had to sit around in cars and we had the sound guys, they were in their truck somewhere. The lighting guys were in their truck. They were in two different areas because they didn't know where each other were parked and everything was secret. No one knew anything. So we had them all separated and we were waiting for the lights to go out, essentially in in these businesses. And eventually, it was quite late in the day when they went out. I think it may have been past six o'clock. And once they went, you know, put out the call to the guys, get in, let's go. And so we had to weave our way through these aerodromes and we decided that we'd use two of them as as for for parking all the vehicles. And the, the beauty about using this particular building was that it was off road and so the and all these aerodromes could hold as many vehicles as what we needed the, the aerodrome itself probably could hold you know 5000 people it was quite big and it had really high ceilings and on this particular night this was on the 25th of february so even if we didn't do two parties in the building across the road the two weeks beforehand, we did February the 11th. So just two weeks before we were across the road, at the very least, if we didn't go back the week after, I can't remember. So this was the 25th of February, and on this particular night, biology were doing their first ever party. And I have a flyer for that, and I'm just showing the biology flyer, the World in Action, the Trivian Man flyer. And I think I commented before, it may have even been on the Rain Dance podcast that I did when I was speaking to Pez and Richard, and I mentioned that when I first saw this flyer, when I'd seen that this logo was part of the World in Action Investigation TV news programmes, this was their logo, and I wasn't a very cultured chap i'd left school at 14 for reasons beyond my control but i left school at 14 and i wasn't that cultured so when i saw that biology was using this logo i didn't know anything about da vinci i thought that this was a news in world in action logo i mean to be fair it obviously says world in action and i'm not sure if jarvis knew but i'm i'm going to give him the credit you know the benefit of the doubt that Jarvis knew that this was a Da Vinci the Trivian man and um, that's how culturally was and so I didn't know that and this was the logo and they were doing this event somewhere in South London and they were broadcasting they had a live broadcast of a heavyweight title fight between Mike Tyson and Frank Bruno and if if you know if Genesis Party was going to get stopped, I was going to be going down there. Well, we we were going to be going down there to, to watch the fight at the minimum, and we already obtained complimentary tickets, and we had already had a VIP to go there. This was actually the actual one from that time, and we had our VIPs to get in and stuff. So that wasn't going to be an issue. But that was only an if you always had to have a backup plan for if your party got stopped. You know, it never ever was good. It was never ever gonna be a guarantee. So we always made sure if there was somewhere else on the night that we'd rather be, we made sure that we were getting in. And we had, and on these occasions, we had really good relationships with the people that we did events with and, and all the big boys. We had great relationships with Jeremy and Tintin from Energy. Anton at World Dance, you know, Sun Sunrise. We had Tony, Denzel, and Charlie, so we had good relationships with all these people. So we could actually turn up at any of their events with a hundred people, two hundred people, and they let everybody in. And it's the same thing with with us, and it it happened too. You know, we we would, you know, you could turn up. Tony could turn up with two hundred people, two hundred people going in. Same same as all the everyone else. Anton. Whoever, whoever you, if you was doing an event on the same night as us, your party got stopped. We wasn't going to say, you know, give us ticket money and give us, you know, ten pound on every ticket or anything like that, which a lot of people would do. You would say, you know, if if someone's party got stopped, you would say, yeah, you can come with us. We'll collect your tickets, and if your tickets were twenty pounds, we might say we want to tenner on every ticket that we collect, which is fair because. If no one collects any ticket money, then the promoter doesn't get any ticket money. So at the death of it, if your party had been stopped, it's better to get 50% of something than 0% of nothing, you know? So that was the feeling about it. No, it was a rough winter. It was a cold winter and it had been snowing all day and snow was scheduled to be happen that evening. And I remember that, um, we set up quite quickly. Once we got in there, we set up quite quickly and we hadn't actually put the word out yet when police arrived. And we had—we didn't have that many people inside the building, a few hundred people, when I say not that many, we had about a few hundred people inside the building at this point, but we hadn't really put the word out to all the meeting points. And we were, I can't remember, we were faffling about doing something and then I remember someone said the police have arrived. The riot police have arrived, actually. And I, I went outside to the front, but I didn't go right outside because I, I, I don't think we were blagging this one. I didn't think we could actually blag this one. So this one was all about front. I came out to the front. I had hundreds of people behind me. I may have stood on this table. I, I, I remember because we had a table by the entrances. And I think I may have stood on this table and kind of gave everybody a bit of a prep speech. Yeah, the police are outside, you know, if if they stop the party, it's over, blah, blah, blah. And so I kind of galvanized the crowd and I had them behind me. And we opened these, these doors, these giant doors, just not too much, just a little bit. And beyond those doors was the police and, and it started snowing. And there was this riot team, probably a couple of dozen police and they was all huddled together and they had full riot gear on and the snow was landing on their helmets and on their black uniforms. And I'm a trained cameraman. And so what, I remember that frame. When I look back at that frame, I just remember snow coming down in slow motion. You know, this line of riot police that stood out in their black uniforms against this backdrop of pure white. And there was the flat, the captain was standing at the front, you know. And so we had a conversation. I can't remember what it was. But it was to the effect that, you know, we shouldn't be there. The Party's over. And I kind of said no. And we kind of argued it out. And then they tried to make a grab for me. And i just remember that jump diving onto the crowd behind me. And they kind of got me away from the front. And someone kind of open the doors wide open and so for the first time the police could see everybody in the warehouse and these doors had opened and and there was this moment of silence and i'll, ne- I'll never forget that moment again the, the cinematography of the whole thing there was this moment of silence and it was probably only a few seconds but it seemed like a minute or so and it was a few hundred people standing in this huge aerodome warehouse And they were looking and they were staring face to face with a police riot squad of a couple of dozen guys in black uniforms against this backdrop of pure white snow. Snow was falling down and it was just pure silence. We just staring at one another. And, And in that moment, I think the police realized that we're not leaving the building, and also you know we're not, we're peaceful people, but we're not leaving the building and uh, you know they just they i can't remember they probably said a few words whatever, and then they left, and the party happened and, and there was a few things that happened that night uh, one of the things I remember happening was um not necessarily happening, but one of the things that stood out to me on that night was. This was February 1989 and I wasn't really big into the whole MC thing. And although I've got the greatest respect for a lot of the MCs and a lot of my great friends and Creed and all those boys, they're my boys and, and Chalky White, you know, they're my boys. And at that time for Genesis, Genesis, we had quite a Balearic feel to our music and our style. And so the MC... Link didn't really match us. And the reason I say that is because the I remember I can't remember what DJs played that night. And I'm sorry, lads, if I can't remember if you played, but hit me up, let me know if you did play that night. But I do remember that the godfather Kenrick played. And the reason I remember Kenrick played was because throughout the night or throughout his set, he kept shouting out Genesis 89. And I was a little bit annoyed with him at the time because I was like, I didn't like that MC thing. I was just, who, who's on the mic? You know, whoever that is, get them off the mic. But years later, that's one of the things I remember about that party was hearing, you know, Genesis 89, and it was quite exciting. There was quite a few things happening that night. Um, So it was a good night, and it was a good party. And that, again, went until eight in the morning or something like that. But that was kind of our fairy lane experience. And I, I, again, if I wanna just comment a little bit more on that biology party, it was on the same night as ours and we were a bit pissed off that anyone would even dare to do a party on the same night as us. Because on that kind of level, it didn't matter about everybody else but on on this level it, it was you know one party were whoever declared the saturday night and it was only one event one big event a night but if you was outside of london that was a whole different story so for us when um sunrise were doing parties they were doing parties outside of london so it didn't matter so much and so biology were doing part they, they did this event in a licensed venue in south london somewhere i can't remember where it was and i remember these chaps were walking about they came down to genesis party and they were walking about with these things on these vips on and so i had a conversation with them about you know where they'd been about a gen- biology party and they'd said it was quite packed and it was manic down there uh, but they didn't get to broadcast the live heavyweight title fight. And I have to be honest, not knowing Jarvis at this point, I'd haven't, I'd never met Jarvis at this point. And I was secretly pleased that it didn't go completely to plan. Although for someone who was doing their first event, they had a packed house. And the difference with, with Jarvis is that Jarvis kind of bought a bit of a hip hop element to it that whole hip house hip hop because i think jarvis's dj name was cut master j so there was quite a hip hop element to it and it was quite a different crowd and so we i would like to talk about it with him and we will we will get him on there at some point so that's kind of that but the ferry lane was really important to to the growth of genesis and i hope that sharing some of these Stories. It's now noted in in, in history, so people can listen to these stories and reminisce about that period of time. As I said before, I'm recording this podcast on the 14th of January 2021, 31 years to the day when Genesis and Sunrise did a, a massive event in a secret location somewhere in London. So I'm really pleased to be doing it on this day. And thanks everybody for taking this time out to listen to the podcast. I appreciate it. Please share, comment, like, wherever you see the podcast. And for some reason, I do get shadow banned on social media. I have no idea why. But it is quite apparent when you analyse you know the behavior of my posts. So, if you're listening to this podcast, please share it far and wide. If you're a member of a group somewhere, you know a Facebook group or or anything or anything really, any type of group, any kind of social media, please you know download all of the different type of clips that we have, all the different promos that we do, and share them far and wide. I really do appreciate it. The image on screen right now, I created that about 20 years ago, years ago. Absolute years ago, I created that. But thanks again for tuning into the podcast. And this was episode 14, I believe. And hope to see see you and speak to you again very soon. Lots of love. And may the force be with you and us. Good luck. Slan. Do you think it's a, anything to do with
0: a certain religion, do you
1: think? No. Is is it? Like that? No, it's no, more no. to do with a
0: kind of a drug, isn't it? It's a drug. Yeah, well, those that take it want to be, ought to be a child of well. themselves. So. According to The Sun, there were thousands of empty ecstasy wrappers littering the floor of the 250-foot-long hangar.
1: Drugs, sex, sensation.
0: Some newspapers have called acid house music a sinister and evil cult which lures young people into drug-taking. The message is certainly getting across. The organisers kept the location secret until the very last moment, which was the main reason, according to the papers, why there were so few police here and they were unable to act. Drug crazed kids, some as young as 12, boogied for eight hours yesterday at Britain's biggest ever ecstasy bash. The party took place here, infiltrated by reporters from the Mail and the Sun. There's supposed to be a uh, drugs related craze. What do you know about acid house music? It must affect the brain in some way. Unless I'd it's rather. just the music that it does it. All knows? them lights flashing don't do you any good either, do it? Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't even go in the no. pub where them lights are. Oh, Look, no, they drive no. You mate,